The title of this evening's talk is Just As It Is. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, of mind, that he was seeking. It said that the Bodhisattva asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha Gautama. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, seated comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with the very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or not being afraid of anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining faces the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the insects and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone under the tree, deeply experiencing and intuitively reflecting on the scene before him. And in his heart, no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking and choosing. As he silently sat, quite still, and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice or attachment, he experienced a sweet pleasure, a happiness, that was not born out of desire for, not born out of clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in remembering this experience, 
the thought occurred, could this be the path to enlightenment? And it said that following on the memory of this joyful and insightful experience from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assurance that in fact this was the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha-to-be, a turning point in his quest for enlightenment, a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anguish, anger, hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, actually couldn't be, purified, banished, released, let go of, or relinquished by creating extreme hardships for oneself and then putting up with or living through or toughing it out in relationship to these extreme self-inflicted hardships or by trying to lose one's self in them. Potentially, a certain kind of strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, would never be seen, never be felt or known with this way. Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on, just as it is. Thoughts, feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in these moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to pick and choose outside or inside. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We very often have a mind that's made up, 
made up about how it's supposed to be or how it isn't supposed to be, made up about what's good, what's bad, what we must have or must not have in order to be happy, in in order to practice. A mind made up about what we definitely know is true or isn't true. A mind made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This, in essence, is the cause of our anguish and confusion. This, in essence, is the cause of dukkha. There's an early Chinese teaching. It's actually quite a long poem by Sengan that speaks of this with a wisdom and clarity, and I'd like to share just a few stanzas of it. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. When the mind exists undisturbed, in the way. Nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. Just let things be their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. The great way is not difficult if we just don't pick and choose. So these preferences of ours, our constant picking and choosing, and most of us being quite attached to our preferences, our choices, and carrying a deep-seated underlying hope that if we try hard enough, think the right way, prefer the right thing, remove the irritant, choose intelligently that things people, particular situations, that life will do what we want it to do, or not do what we don't want it to do, with certain conditions being particular ways that are, of course, our preferences, that we'll be happy. Along with this hope that borders on a belief for many people. There's also a deep-seated underlying fear, with the other side of which is actually wisdom, that life just does what it does, that essentially it's unmanageable, ungovernable, that essentially we have no control over how it is. 
when in our practice we begin to look into and begin to see our preferences and the activity in the mind of picking and choosing, to look into the conditioned mind, the with mind, the mind with conditions, seeing this phenomena occurring without getting seduced into the content, when we touch this, we're actually seeing into the cause of anguish and confusion. We're actually seeing into the cause of suffering. When in our practice we begin to look into and see the underlying fear, of things essentially being unmanageable, essentially being out of our control. Again, without getting seduced into the content of whatever stories or considerations may be surrounding the fear, we're actually potentially taking a step in the direction of wisdom. Stepping into the territory of truth the territory of just how it is. Stepping into the territory of truth asks us to let go of our cherished, hoped-for map. The without mind. To be without these sought-after conditions for a moment. A mind for a moment without conditions. Willing to simply be with, look into, and see. See it, whatever it is, just as it is. I found it to be both amazing, and at the same time totally ordinary in the ways these illuminations can present themselves through our formal practice and in our life as our practice, in the midst of and outside of a retreat setting. You're sitting for 45 minutes, an hour, Calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness developing and known. The thought coming through, this is good. I'll just stay here for another hour or more. And then strong bodily pain. Sensations in the legs start up. Maybe you continue to hold tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain. Put up with it. Tough it out. Find a way to get rid of it. Or maybe try to ignore it. Or somehow pretend it's not there, so that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do the thing that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour or more. Or maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind, a mind not made up, without preferences, without picking and choosing anything, without the concept of pain, 
There might be the open-hearted receptivity to see what is this thing I want to get away from or that I want to get away from me. You might notice, for instance, that when your leg moves even just a tiny bit, the discomfort disappears. And there's a sudden recognition of the insubstantiality of the seeming solidity of pain, rather than what might be a habitual thought, oh, thank goodness, that's gone. You might simply, directly, and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all the various sensations occurring in your leg, And notice them changing, changing and moving. Recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no picking and choosing in those moments, and no time frame just being with, seeing and knowing experience just as it is. This relationship to experience, to any phenomena that arises in your body-mind continuum, the without-mind relationship to things, just the right ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. In our practice, in our life as our practice, recognizing the mind that's made up, the mind that's clinging, this sets the stage for the recognition and the realization of the cause of suffering. And the very natural movement of the heart, the mind, to let go, to soften, to open, and simply relinquish the contraction of clinging. Just about everybody has ideas, opinions, concepts of how it is how it's supposed to be, what's true, what's good and will make you happy, what's bad and will make you miserable, angry, or sad. If you hold tightly to these opinions, these concepts, they could prevent you from meeting the moment you're in and you miss your appointment with life. What if events don't have to be anything other than what they are? Just let things be in their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. For instance, the thought of and the experience of anicca, impermanence, it's often conceived of and related to with the mind of resistance, fear, rage, despondency. What about the truth 
that if there was no change, there would be no life. And imagine, if you can, what it would be like if nothing ever changed. An incredible nightmare. The worst nightmare, if nothing ever changed. No impermanence, no life. So maybe we should consider celebrating Anicca. Our idea that certain events are bad and are supposed to make us angry or sad, maybe this isn't necessarily always true. Have you ever had an experience in your life with something or some place or even someone? that you were attached to, or maybe simply took for granted, or something that you felt was important or even essential in some way for you? Have you ever had an experience in your life when this thing or place or person changed, left, wasn't in your life anymore? And within a fairly short time, you noticed that whole new world, so to say, opened up for you. As we learn to pay a careful, close, and open-hearted attention to the changing nature of things, just within our own body-mind continuum, letting go of resistance, we'll begin to see this occurring in myriad small ways and sometimes big ways because it's the nature of things, the way of things. I had a student who, when he began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, and as he expressed it, he not only saw that though his day never went just as he planned it, he began to truly accept that this was just how it is, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. That it too was simply unfolding, undoing, according to conditions that he had absolutely no control of. In a practice interview one evening with him, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it starts. Because, as he said, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, mostly anger at, taking an offensive stance at things, people, events, not going his way, so to say. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. And in part, this softening heart was forgiving itself for the pain that 
was experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. When he told me about this piece of his practice, I was struck by the unusual way that he was using forgiveness. And that, in fact, it was working for him. Helping him to recognize and more deeply accept that there's no control. That things arise, change, and pass away without end. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. In relationship to other people, it doesn't matter, for instance, if another person notices I'm feeling and maybe even expressing anger. It doesn't matter if his image of me is shattered. What matters is that you are willing to come face to face with your anger and the awareness of the anger. This is hard work, so to say. Tremendous energy and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without judgment, you make no effort to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who is a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. The great Thai forest meditation master, Achan Chah, used to tell his monks, it's a good thing I'm not perfect. If I was, you would get dependent on me for your awakening and not do the absolutely necessary work of looking into yourself. There might be a very subtle aspect of complacency in our practice. Or the knowing of a degree and depth of peace and ease that 
honestly and truly manifested, has manifested, and been established through our practice, that we're deeply grateful for, and that we may have settled for. If we're lucky, if we truly take our life as our practice, at various points along the way, we'll step into or welcome in pieces of life, aspects of our human existence that ask us to go maybe surprisingly deeper than we might deliberately pick or choose. To go deeper into relinquishing aspects of the map, our map of the world that still varies from the actual territory of how it is. About two and a half years ago, during a 14-month period of my life, I discovered something about preferences, about picking and choosing, about the with mind, the mind that's made up, and the strain and struggle, the pain therein. And I discovered something about the without mind, the heart, the mind that's not made up, that doesn't want anything to be different, that isn't picking and choosing. These weren't new discoveries. But during this time, these understandings showed up from an unexpected and even unsuspected depth. About two and a half years ago, I spent five days with my mother, who was 91 years old at the time. And she was living in a very difficult situation, about an hour and a half away from my home in Taos, New Mexico. At the end of my visit, as I was just about to walk out the door, I turned around and looked long at her, fully letting in the whole of the situation into my heart. And I said to myself, I can't leave her here. I'm taking her home with me. Within an hour, I had her and her most essential belongings packed up and in my car, and we were off. In retrospect, the moment of knowing what must be done and the subsequent hour of activity in response to this knowing was probably as pure a moment as I've had. Simply responding with the clarity, spontaneity, and equipoise of the still and empty mind, out of which springs unconditional compassion. The without mind, the heart without preference, no thought of picking and choosing, the heart, the mind wide open, spacious, No thought of the past, not anticipating the future. A mind not made up about things. And then we were home to Taos. And an unexpected, unsuspected depth of practice ensued. Very quickly it dawned on me that I had made a commitment to take my mother into my life until death do us part, as I said to a friend. She couldn't go back to where she'd been, and I couldn't shift her off to a nursing home. Life took a radically new turn. 
living very closely with another person and this person happening to be my mother. After living alone for many, many years in a life filled with practicing and teaching the Dhamma in many different places. And now, all of a sudden, living very closely with someone who needed a great deal of ongoing and increasing amount of caretaking in relationship to all of the basics of life that we usually take for granted for ourselves. Preparing and eating appropriate food, taking medication, washing our bodies, washing our clothes, dressing, toileting, communicating, knowing what time of day it is and what that might mean in relationship to sleep and being awake. Though my heart was truly and fully committed to seeing us through this last bit of my mother's life, the with mind, the mind of picking and choosing, the conditional mind, stepped up a few times, seemingly out of the depths, with a strength and a burn that took me by surprise. What an incredible opportunity to see the contraction, the depth and intensity of the discomfort of tightening up around my preferences, what I want to do, and when I want to do it. What an incredible opportunity to bring the qualities of honesty and humility to see the depth and intensity of the discomfort of resistance to how things are. The painful contraction of wanting life to be different than it is. Even though the heart and mind are fully committed to being with how it is. And what an incredible opportunity to see the ease the peace, the peace of mind, of heart, when there's no preference, no picking and choosing, no pull, no yearning, no hoping for, no anger, no fear, no resistance. Just knowing the peace, the ease of being, nothing to become, nothing to get, the without mind, Nothing needing to be different than it is. And simply going about the day, our day or our night, from this relationship to things. Early one morning, ten months ago, at the end of the first week of a month-long retreat that I was teaching at a place in New Mexico that was about 10 minutes away from the house that my mother and I were living in, I received a phone call from the caretaker who was staying with my mother that morning so that I could be at the retreat. In 10 minutes I was home, my heart meeting my mother, who was no longer alive. Fourteen months of deep, sustained practice that in some way was a preparation to meet this moment. Fourteen months of deep, sustained practice coming together, clearly and easily, just simply in place, in a very connected, very present, soft, and open way through the four days following my mother's death. The without mind. The heart just simply receiving the way of things.
we kept my mother's body at home for four days. The fourth morning being the time that we took her to be cremated, as was her wish. On that first afternoon, after we gave her a slow, gentle, and loving sponge bath, we didn't disturb her body, but just simply let things be as they were. And spending many, many hours, day and night, in her room with her, doing many hours of sitting, doing some chanting, reading aloud, singing, making music, talking to her, and lovingly talking about her with friends who stop by, offering their caring and paying their respects. As her body and her spirit, her life energy, her karmic force, whatever term has meaning for you, as it changed and moved in its natural course, with moments of sadness, immense gratitude and love, and the deepening, spacious expanse of acceptance, being met and received with no preference, no picking and choosing, no pull, no yearning, no hoping for, no anger, no fear, no resistance. Meeting and receiving the fullness of life and the truth of the emptiness, the no-self nature of life, which includes and is mirrored in the clear light of death, if we can look into the mirror with nothing needing to be different than it is. Being so intimately involved with the last 14 months of my mother's life and the four days immediately following her death was a great and amazing privilege, the great blessing of a gift that has continued to unwrap itself in ways that have been and continue to be deeply inspiring and illuminating. And from Ajahn Chah again. Be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come and drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Can we relinquish our preference of picking and choosing? Can we be with phenomena, whatever it is, just as it is? The truth is lying in wait to be seen and known right in this moment. Can we begin to see and realize the true nature of things in every kind of birth? Not needing to add anything and not needing to take anything away. Can we wander into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, the world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different than anything else in the world, 
Nothing to argue with. Nothing to cling to. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. The wise strive to know goals. The foolish fetter themselves. There is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from ignorant clinging. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are, as they are, of one essence. Fathoming the mystery of one essence is to be released from all entanglements. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.